My name is Jana Zinzi, and welcome to the first installment of Spirit in the Material World, an audio and video project I've been cultivating for a while, and I'm finally letting it loose. My vision for this is kind of like Eat, Pray, Love, but with more flavor, some Old Bay sprinkled with Sazon. We are in a deeply transformational time, and I hope to provide some inspiration, education, laughter, and healing. Travel has been my longtime passion, and this is the longest I've been grounded in like 15 years. It's been a challenge during quarantine to figure out how to create travel content when we've been grounded, but the times we are in call for us to connect with communities outside of our own, even if we can't travel to them physically. There are lessons to be learned and stories to be shared. This episode is dedicated to Tulsa, Oklahoma, a special place in my heart. I've only been to Tulsa once, but it made an impact on me. Back in 2018, I went to participate in Breakout, which brings together diverse leaders across industries to explore the culture of a particular American city. Through activities led by local organizers, artists, and entrepreneurs, attendees build and bond. I had no idea what to expect, but was invited, and so I said, why not? I knew a bit about Tulsa, really a bit about the history of Black Wall Street, but visiting a place always makes things real. You could feel the history and the energy, the earth and the air. Black Wall Street was the epicenter of business and society in the Greenwood District, where Black people lived because of Jim Crow laws and legislated segregation. We had our own businesses, churches, newspapers, homes, and so much more. White people could shop anywhere in town, but often frequented Black Wall Street businesses, even though Black people couldn't go shop in other neighborhoods. In 1921, a mob of white supremacists burned down Black Wall Street, decimating businesses and killing Black Tulsans. Their quote-unquote excuse was some typical racist bullshit story about a young Black man accosting a young white woman. It's rumored that they were actually a secret couple, but were caught kissing in an elevator, so she lied and said that he pushed up on her. It's a classic American trope that's been getting Black men killed for centuries. Tulsa has been going through this reconciliation campaign for the last few years as they get closer to the centennial in 2021. This means renaming streets, neighborhoods, buildings, and more that are named after Klansmen. W. Tate Brady is a Klansman whose name is or was everywhere. His former mansion is known as the Skyline Mansion and is now a home of hip-hop parties and different local Black arts events. It's pretty fly in person, even though it's really creepy. But I gotta say, it was dope as fuck to dance to Black-ass music and just be there and stomp the ground. Anyway, I met Black Tulsan business owners, artists, and political professionals And I felt like I just wanted to see them win extra hard, not just because they were cool people or because of what our ancestors experienced there, but because we are American Black diaspora fam. It was on that trip I started to better understand my passion for documenting Black stories and lifting up the history that American schools purposely deny us. It was only a couple of weeks ago that we commemorated the 99th anniversary of the Tulsa Massacre. And Tulsa just gained national attention because of President Troll's proposed Juneteenth rally, which he was doing there, but subsequently moved to June 20th. I think the pressure got to him, the protest, the anger, the rage. I don't know if he has a heart, but he changed it anyway. 
Juneteenth is a pivotal day in American history, June 19, 1865, because it commemorates when enslaved Africans in Texas were told they were free. Even though the Civil War ended two and a half years prior, the news wasn't officially announced in order to maintain some remnants of slavery for as long as possible. But it is a celebratory day because it symbolizes our freedom as Black people in America, even though we are still fighting for it today. The gaslighting of Black folks and signaling violence to white supremacists is undeniable and it is clear. It's especially infuriating considering the protests demanding racial justice after George Floyd was murdered on camera by police. It feels personal, one, as a Black woman in America, and two, because I met some amazing folks of various races and ethnicities who are doing deep work in Tulsa for equality. The community there is strong, beautiful, and committed. It's not easy or perfect, but transformation is afoot. What's been giving me a lot of hope in these days is returning back to a conversation I had last month with Onika Asamoa Caesar, the founder of Fulton Street Bookstore and Cafe, which is opening in a few weeks in the Greenwood District of Tulsa, formerly Black Wall Street. I interviewed her for an article that I did recently for Color Lines around the anniversary of the massacre. And yo, we went in. <laughs> It was such a great conversation and a dope connection. And I just feel like her story is really important, not only as um, a Black Tulsan woman, but also her experiences about how we are our ancestors' wildest dreams. So tell me about, um, you know, your journey into um, founding this bookstore um, and what about Tulsa? Like, what kept you there? Yeah, so I um, was born in New Jersey, raised in Southern California. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I finished high school in Hazelhurst, Mississippi, um, mm. about 30 miles south of Jackson. And I'm starting there not to, like, go back and tell you my whole life story, but really to provide, I guess, context into all of the things that have kind of been shaping this vision for so long. So I think coming mm. from Southern California, which is very diverse, um, of course, we have our own type of bubble and our own type of segregation in California, right. but it looks very different. So you can kind of have the illusion that, um, oh, this is so diverse and it's amazing and everyone's kind of on equal footing. But coming mm. from a place like that to Hazelhurst, Mississippi, where um, we moved to a very small town, and um, my high school was de facto segregated, right, which was something that I had not seen in as stark terms as I witnessed being in Hazelhurst, Mississippi. Um, mm. We probably had, I'm not even kidding, maybe like three white students in our entire high school, and that wasn't the demographic makeup of Hazelhurst, the town. Um, and wow. there was one other high school that was um, a private school. And so literally every mm. white family in that town, minus the two or three that were at his her, sent their children um, to a private school. Um, yep. So that kind of early on kind of broke my um, imagination of what type of world I lived in. So I got to see what mm. I would call my friends back home and be like, I feel like I'm living in a history book. Um, mm. So that was kind of like the first maybe – I shouldn't necessarily call it awakening, but like the, the, the entry point to what would be, I think, an awakening to um, the world that we live in or the country that we live mm. in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went back to California after I finished um, 
high school. And there's one story that always stands out to me, which is um, me leaving Mississippi, believing I was leaving behind kind of segregation and um, blatant racism and Confederate flags and all of those things. And mm. so I'm in college. It's like summer right before school starts. Um, I'm in a summer bridge program. Um, our RA is taking us to, you know, like our first college party. He's like trying to be the cool RA. And so, you know, <laughs> sneaks up to our first college party, which is in like these college apartments across the street from the dorms. And we're walking down the street. And I think we're probably mostly a group of people of color. Mm. And walking down the street and there's this car that drives by and it's maybe a group of five white boys. And one of them hangs his the upper half of his body out the window and just screams, mm. niggers. And I wow. just had this moment because I was like, I left Hazelhurst, Mississippi, thinking that I was going back to this utopia. And it takes mm. me coming back to California to get called a nigger. Like, what did I miss? Right mm-hmm. about where I was leaving and where I was um, running to, mm. um, and so that's probably one of the early seeds that was planted in me around wanting to really reconcile that lived experience in Mississippi with um, the world I thought I lived in in California. Mm. So fast forward, um, I'm, and I end up majoring in history, and to me, history became a way to. Um, provide context and language for my experience. It was easier to understand the world I had been kind of thrust into in Mississippi when I looked at history. Um, I also, I remember in college doing an oral history project and I, uh, my subject was my mother and my mom actually grew up on a plantation in Kruger, Mississippi. Um, and her family, um, were sharecroppers and so she grew up picking cotton and all the things and Mm -hmm. um, it's another one of those moments where you know I've been thinking about history and um, the history of race in this country and slavery and and sharecropping and segregation and Jim Crow things that were so long ago but here I was with my mother who had grown up on a plantation picking cotton and that's not something that um, I think you know when, when when people and myself even were thinking about these things, think of it as like ancient, like so long ago. That's right. And that just was not the place. <laughs> Same. So, <laughs> I mean, it's every day, every day. Um, mm-hmm. And so I finish, I finish college and I decide to go traveling for a year. Mm. I've always kind of been this person who, um, I don't want to say fly by the seat of my pants, but kind of just, you know, what's next? <laughs> what feels good right now? It feels like it's the best thing. Okay, let's do it. Let's take a jump. Let's do something. So mm-hmm. I was traveling for a year, um, and I got to experience um, a lot of things outside the context of the United States while yeah. still being kind of haunted by the context of the United States, regardless of where I was. Um, Ooh, girl. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> And, I was like, yeah, I felt it's, that. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. so real. It's so real. Um, really... But mm-hmm. I volunteered at a woman's prison in Guatemala. I worked wow. on a health campaign in Tonga um, for they're having a they were having I don't know what the current the update is, but they were having a um, I think around fifty percent of the population um, was suffering from diabetes and having you know the full healthcare campaign around then I. Studied Muay Thai boxing in Thailand. I got lost, you mm. know, in countries like Cuba, and you know, just, just yes. really, just was all over the place. South Africa. That's um, great. 
and got to see education outside of the context of the United States. And right. Costa Rica was probably the formative place for, oh, my goodness, education can be done differently. Um, mm. And I think this is where I want to go. So I signed up for Teach for America, got accepted. Um, I ranked, I think, my top two were Oklahoma and Florida. And I put Florida because they had a master's program in education and social justice. And Oklahoma mm. was in my top two. I think it was my number one because, President Obama had shouted out Oklahoma as one of the um, best places in the country for early childhood ed. Wow. So Okay. Yes. Yeah. Wouldn't have imagined. Um, and so that was, you know, the emphasis behind me kind of checking the box, like, send me to Oklahoma, send me to Florida, got sent to Oklahoma. Between Tulsa and OKC, it was literally a toss-up. I was like, I think I've heard of Tulsa before, so I looked Tulsa. And so here I am. And then, you know, your question was really – um, what kept you there, and the truth of the matter is, my husband, now husband and I decided to leave. Um, so came to Tulsa, and, you know, mm. I was like, I can live in Haverhurst, Mississippi. I can live anywhere. <laughs> so came to Tulsa. was pleasantly surprised. Um, I think, you know, I was like, oh, it's going to be some little town, you know, a developed city. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, when I was coming here, people were like, are there black people in Oklahoma? You know, all those questions. Um, and, you know, came here, taught for two years in North Tulsa, which is the predominantly uh, black part of town. Tulsa is very segregated. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you remember this from when you were here. Um, mm-hmm. And fell in love with teaching, fell in love with my students and the community, um, but ultimately made the decision to leave Tulsa. And I always say <laughs> the, the same decisions, you know, the same reasons, excuse me, that we left ended up being the same reasons that we came back. Mm. So, um, really, as it's crazy, now we have a baby, but, you know, we're thinking about Yay. what does it look like to build a family here, and we're right. thinking about our, you know, our hypothetical children then. Like, well, you know, we don't want to have to choose between a great education or somewhere where our children will have an identity crisis. That doesn't feel right. Um, also, the issues in Tulsa just felt so deeply rooted, right? When you think about mm-hmm. Two of the um, most traumatic events in, like, the history of this country We've had, you know, the OKC bombing and the Tulsa race massacre and mm. Oklahoma's the end of the Trail of Tears. Like, there mm. is a very deep-seated trauma in the state um, that we can't um, get out of through logistics or technical, you know, like, there's a lot of work yeah. that has to be done here. And so that felt kind of insurmountable. So we were like, oh, and, you know, there were a few other reasons. And so we decided to leave. We moved to Denver, Colorado. I ended up working in policy because I felt like um, within education, policy was the way to make change. Um, I, mm-hmm. to be honest, when I left the classroom, was feeling very disheartened about um, an individual's ability to make change in the education system. I love what right. I can, you know, do for my children, but. That second year of teaching, when I saw my babies go to classrooms that didn't have the same level of care for them or their families, um, mm. and I taught first grade, so, you know, they had second, third, fourth, all the way through 12, all that work yep. to be undone. Um, yep. That was disheartening. So I was like, okay, if we can get policies in place and make sure, you know, we have high-quality educators from pre-K through 12, then, you know, it's a little naive then. But I loved policy. It was great. That's <laughs> 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 policy. Um and ultimately, and I'm sorry, I'll wrap this up because I know. We're no, no, no. This is fascinating. Please go on. You're good. <laughs> ultimately, um, 
again, love policy, but it's policy is slow. The politics, the policy, this was not that appealing to me. And we ultimately yeah. decided to come back to Tulsa. And this is the plot twist. Um, we basically turned all of our reasons for leaving on their head. And so we said, yes, the problems are deep-seated, but, you know, a place like Denver, saturated with nonprofits, not the right. same in Tulsa. Like you can actually, I say this all the time, you can move the needle, you can make change, you can actually have impact in a place like Tulsa. We can wrap our arms around the problem because of the size and scope um, of a place mm. like Tulsa. Mm. Um, and so that was like, okay, flip that reason. And we thought about education. We were like, well, you know, part of perpetuating educational inequity is, is people removing themselves from their um, neighborhood school. So if we want to be part of the solution, we can um, reinvest in our neighborhood school and ensure our children go there. And we've both been in education, and there's four degrees between the two of us. Our baby's going to be okay. Um, yes. And then, you know, the the one thing I think that was still um, lingering for us was this idea of community. So Tulsa does not have a thriving um, black middle class. Um, mm-hmm. And I think what we you know, everything's 2020 in hindsight. It was not this clear when we were moving here. But I think the way we rationalized that, rationalized that in our mind was, you know, we'll never never have one if people like us keep leaving. That's um, right. If people don't invest in the city in a way that allows folks who are here to say, I have something to stay for, um, right. then that will never happen. So, you know, even though we don't see it yet, we can be part of building that. And I mean, that was the other opportunity with Tulsa. A place like San Francisco, it's done. A place like Denver, yeah. it's done. Um, right. All these places, they have a culture, they have a um, a vibe. They're they're built, they're established. Mm-hmm. Very malleable deal. Like we could mm. actually be. We moved to Denver, and there were so many people who were like, "Man, we were here when you know." Da 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 da. And Tulsa is a place where we can say that now, like we were here when, um, and that also means that we get to be a part of building what the future looks like. I will say I underestimated how many other people were also interested in building a Tulsa that they imagined. Um, because, uh-huh. but some of the stuff that's been going on, I was like, oh, other people have plans too, and they are not the same plans we have, like open, unlicensed open carry. I mean, there's been a lot of, um, Interest, yes, interesting things. But um, we're rooted here now. We're planning here. This is definitely home. This is, mm-hmm. you know, where we're building our family. And we have a lot of, of hope for um, for what's to come and feel mm-hmm. um, as people who are driven by impact, like this was the right place for us. So how long have you been back? So, oh, my goodness. You're going to ask me. Uh, Lord. Um Okay, this is 2020. I think we mm-hmm. came back 20, 20 this, no, 2016. Mm, yeah, I think okay. we came back in 2016. Yeah, so we were gotcha. here for two years, 2013, stayed for two, left for one, came back. Got you. Okay. Because when you were talking about the, you know, kind of the other side of the coin where you have the, you know, the other folks with plans like, you know, open carry mm-hmm. and these kinds of things, I wanted, I was curious if you had been there before and after uh, Trump yep. or, you know what I mean? Like, oh. about, oh. you know, um, and particularly from when I visited, you know, what from what I was seeing and experienced and understood is that there is an intention within the city to um, take down a lot of those like KKK names, like Brady Arts District being renamed and, you know, the, like, uh, the Brady Mansion now is, you know, 
pretty oh, much yeah. like reclaimed from what I understand. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so I'm, you know, just thinking about patterns and, you know, of behavior, if, if it's like been more souped up and more amped up since, you know, 2016. And it would make sense because of having like, you know, everything has what an equal and uh, opposite reaction. I don't know if that's the right yep. thing, but, yep. um, you know, so that's yeah. interesting. And so then this makes sense in terms of, you know, understanding your background in education, commitment to history, wanting to do, um, have some sort of social impact that yep. what made you think about a bookstore and a space in this yeah, way? Yeah, I completely got off the rails of where I was going. No, you're, this is, which is, this like is what it's I always great do. to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm really interested. Uh, we have very similar backgrounds, I think, and um, oh. like all the stuff that you were saying about college really resonated with me. Like I grew up in New York. Um, not right in the city. My parents both worked for the city, but we I grew up in Mount Vernon okay. right outside of the city. Okay. And so the experience of leaving New York and then like going somewhere where I was like, oh, there's like this weird segregation thing and there's mm-hmm. only black folks mm-hmm. and white folks. Like where are the Latinos at? Where are the Asian people exactly. at? Like, there's no like, <laughs> what's going on? You know? Yeah. So, um, and then also to understanding like how racism worked there, but, um, you know, also in a place like California that people think it's this, like, liberal bastion. Oh, my God, it's just, you know, like, pride flags and, like, black power everywhere. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, uh, nah, dude, <laughs> them Confederate yeah. flags yeah. ride hard, too, you know? And, right. and I right. don't think that people always think about that or associate that with a place like California or even New York where you could drive upstate mm-hmm. and it's a whole different world, you know? Yep. Um, so anyway, I appreciated that reflection, um, like you sharing all that. And same thing, my mom comes from a sharecropping, um, family Mm -hmm. as well. They grew up in North Carolina, you know, and so like she was like picking tobacco and stuff in the summers and, you know, that kind of shit. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. And, and what I love so much about this too, you know, beyond the scope of the piece that I'm doing is I just love hearing about, um, black stories like black american stories um and the connections that we all have the differences the ways that they the diaspora looks in different places around the world a but like even just within um our context and i'm like i have so many questions i'm like yo you were doing more Thai and like all this kind of stuff I'm like yes I used to hear about Cuba like that's a whole other story time you know but no like when you say I'm really interested in black stories like that is like if I had to sum up I mean maybe not sum up because that's really hard but that's like one of Mm -hmm. my core guiding I don't know reason for a lot of Fulton Street which is I love stories and I think that you know, we all have um, a lot of stories. You know, there's the um, the danger of a single story, I think it's called. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, but I think, and, and that's true for people too, which is, you know, we also can't tell a single story about ourselves. And so that's with right. me majoring in history, it was like just discovering all these stories. And I felt like I was able to understand myself and the world around me so much better. So I think as an adult out in the world, when you're kind of seeing some of the challenges, like, man, like, what if, what if storytelling, right, is part of the solution? What if storytelling yeah. is somewhat an act of, um, revolution, right? Because it's easy. So 
take, for example, where Folsom Street is situated. We're in the middle of Brady Heights, you know, Brady's mm-hmm. named after the Klansmen, um, and the neighborhood is gentrifying, and it's gentrifying mm-hmm. pretty fast. And, mm-hmm. you know, there are folks who would be like, oh, people are worried about gentrification. They don't want a Starbucks. I don't care about Starbucks, Whole Foods, none of that. What I care about is that we often pay for, quote, unquote, progress, right, of, of cities mm-hmm. and neighborhoods or whatever um, right. with our bodies. And so the example I'll always give is I was driving home, and um, I'm right around the corner from my house, and there's this young black boy taking off down the street. Probably has on hoodie, I don't know. Um, mm. And he's, like, booking it, right? And the first thought that popped into my head, because of the time of day it was, I was like, ooh, street lights are about to come on. He got to get home, right? Because that's right. context. part of my story. Um, okay. I understand the context I live in, the community I live in. Um, but what happens when, you know, you now have a neighborhood that's demographically changing and that isn't part of people's story? And that's where yeah. we get the the phone calls. So the police, you know, there's that's right. some, you know. That's right. The neighborhood has a Facebook page. And um, there has been a lot of work done because that is exactly what was happening on that Facebook page. You had people moving right. to the neighborhood. They're all on this Facebook page. They're sitting by their windows. They're doing whatever. Oh, there's a suspicious black whatever walking down the street. Why yeah. are they suspicious because they're walking down the street? Because you are not used to seeing black bodies in, quote, unquote, your space. This now makes yeah. this person suspicious. And that leads to, again, us paying for these things with our bodies, with our livelihoods. That's right. Um, and so that is the piece of, you know, gentrification that concerns me. And so with Fulton Street, what um, part of what I, I, you know, intend to do is, like, how do we uncover these stories and how can stories be used as a connection point for people? So what we see kind of um, in national, well, national politics is a whole other thing. But if I'm just mm-hmm. thinking about immigration, for example, right, part right. of the pattern was, you know, I'm someone who's never met an immigrant, doesn't know someone who is an immigrant. And so it's easy for me to create this picture, this story in my head of who, quote, unquote, those people are. Um, When you sit across from someone and look them in the eye and hear their story, it gives you a different data point that hopefully disrupts that pattern of thinking. Um, And so when you see those narratives, you now have – a clink in the chain, right, that doesn't yes. allow you to accept it, you know, easily. At least that's the idea. Now, you know, mm-hmm. myself, I've, I've learned there are a lot of exceptions to that rule. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but how do we Oof. use stories to break down um, the barriers between people and allow people to, yes. um, you know, occupy different patterns of thought, I guess, is the, yes. is the idea. Something like that. Yes. I'm about to cry. I'm like, because that to me is like, we are so much in alignment in that. I feel the same way about storytelling and I come from a strategic communications background. Right. Mm. And so Mm -hmm. I am in spaces with a lot of um, brilliant minds, radical communicators, um, as literally they are called, um, thinking about these, these issues, right, and thinking about yeah. the, the power of story and also advocating to other communicators about the power of story. And that yeah. especially in a time like this, this is when we really need to be lifting up yeah. these personal connection points because in a time where the information that's being, being put out is 
intentionally divisive. Yep. We have to really lean into the ways that we're all experiencing some bullshit and we're all experiencing the same oppression. (laughs) You know, just it just looks different depending on who you've been labeled as in this country. You know? Exactly. Um, so I'm just I'm encouraged by this um by this conversation so much and and by the way that you're approaching it. Because it's not just like media is one thing, but it's those interpersonal yeah. connections, um, yeah. particularly in community that I think are um, incredibly powerful and have like the greatest potential for uh, transformation. Oh, thank so. you. Thank you. Thank you. That's awesome. And you mentioned, oh, well, there was one thing I wanted. To, oh, The Warmth of Other Suns. Have you read that book? Which book? The Warmth of Other Suns. No, I have not. Oh, I'm sending it to you. What's your address? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> You're going to love yeah, it. I will send you my address. Oh, my gosh. Okay, I please send me Yeah, I, I will. I will. You're going to love it. Oh, that's a blessing. Thank you. Um, of course. What made you think about that? Um, it was when you were mentioning your love of storytelling, and I think also combined with your um, the story of your mother. So the Warmth of Other Sons mm. is the story of the great migration of Black folks out of the South and into, you know, other places around the country, the North and going mm. West and all of those things. And yeah. it follows the story of, I want to say, five families, um, mm. four or five families, um, and their migration. Um, but anyway, I think it, I think, It'll be something that resonates with you, and because of your love of stories, like following these five families, is it, it, it's a pretty hefty book, but it's one that you just don't want to put down. It reads beautifully, yes. and it encaptures like the way I think her name is last name is Wilkerson. I know um, the way mm-hmm. that you capture these stories are just beautiful. So I think you'll love it. Thank you so much. I love that because honestly, it's hard for me to like. I tend to read a lot of nonfiction, but not narrative mm-hmm. nonfiction in this way of like personal yep. storytelling. I end up reading like nerdy, you know, facts like learn something deep, yep. you know. Or and the thing is, I'm like, I really want to read more fiction, but then I can't. Yep. I don't. I end up not getting as into that either. So this to me is like that kind of perfect um, mix. So thank you yeah. so much. Yeah. That is, I'm also is in the an non, honor. I'm also in the nonfiction boat, and it's another. Um, so with Fulton Street, um, you know, our mission is kind of twofold. So one is how do we build intergenerational literacy? And, again, that's another, um, you know, kind of thing that I took away from my mother, which is, you know, her mom didn't read or write, and there's a reason for that. We can't think right. about um, literacy outside of the context of this country. And so as a someone who is in education, you know, I would hear these false narratives around, you know, people don't read to their children. They don't care about their education. These parents, da 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 mm-hmm. um, And I thought about my mom. I was like, my mom ain't never read me a book a day in her life. But she mm. deeply values education. She supported me in, you know, pursuing my bachelor's and my master's degree and, you know, whatever else I want to do. Um, mm. But because she was raised by a mother who was illiterate because it was illegal for her mother. You know, at, at a point in history, it was right. illegal for black folks to learn how to read or write or any of those things. Um, right. And now we say, and, and even if it's not that direct, we also have to take into account that a lot of, you know, the parents of the children I was teaching, they were going, they went to the same failing schools that their kids are now going to, right? And there's mm. a reason that the schools they went to were failing. So we can't, right. anyway. Intergenerational literacy which takes into account um, community when thinking of literacy um, and then also fights this narrative that 
we don't have um, literature or language-rich environments, right? So mm. um, a lot of times what I see happen in education is we come up with all these things, right, like serve and return, which um, for me, I'm like, serve and return? That's call and respond in the church. <laughs> you know, like we do that every Sunday. And right. At Revival. And in hip-hop. And, oh. <laughs> and it, you know, or ad yeah. You know, it's just like that is totally. something that is very natural. And so when you, um, you know, have children in the classroom and you see them as a deficit and you don't take into account the things that they are already bringing in that you can build on because you see their mm. community is lacking, you miss an opportunity to support the education of our babies. Um, yes. And so making sure that we are taking into context the communities and what children are already bringing to the table um, if we are to help facilitate their educational journey. Um, so that's part Amazing. of intergenerational literacy and then um, community building. So the example I always give my dad, I always have to put the disclaimer, I don't believe in beating your children, but my dad will, you know, always tell you when he was growing up, if he got in trouble at school, he got beat by three people before he got home. Mm-hmm. underlying that is, you know, this collective sense of responsibility for the children. Mm-hmm. Those are not, you know, somebody else's kids. These are our our kids. And yeah. um, we don't experience, at least in my experience, I haven't experienced community in that sense. Um, you know, it, it, it's painful when you hear the stories of, you know, someone, you know, has been dead in their house for four days before someone died right. or things like that. Um, right. How do we rebuild those geographic connections those you know people knowing who their neighbors are being able to lean on someone in case of you know an emergency or things like that Mm -hmm. so using the physical space of Fulton Street too to build community um and most of our bringing it back now to what you said about like the love of nonfiction, right so history major I always I said so I'm a history major so of course I don't like you know fiction and I you know (laughs) gravitate towards um nonfiction. I read Americana and yes. uh-huh. for me, at least for me, was, oh, it's not that I don't like fiction, is that I was having some internal conflict because all the fiction I was reading denied my existence, right? Mm. And so I think it's the same in some ways for our children, which is, you know, when I was teaching first grade, I'd be so frustrated when my babies didn't want to read because I loved reading growing up. But mm-hmm. I was giving them literature that did not reflect them, their communities, their families, their lives. Um, mm. And so there's something that, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of maladjusting. You don't adjust to being denied in the world. Um, and so when I read Americana, it changed it for me because I was like, maybe I don't dislike fiction. Maybe it's just that I haven't had the type of fiction that, you know, was interesting because I couldn't see myself in the pages. Mm. Um, and so 70, at least 70% of our inventory, and right now it's upwards of 90%, is written by or featuring people of color and marginalized communities. Um, mm. And so our selection is curated in that way. And I can't tell you the amount of tears I've wanted to cry when our, like, pre-opening events when people have walked in and been like, oh, my gosh, I've never seen this many books reflecting, you know, insert any identity. Um mm. That's what I want. I want people to walk in and feel like um, I see myself reflected on this shelf. I see my people, yeah. my community, my language reflected on these shelves um, versus, you know, walking into a Barnes & Noble and you have, like, a shelf. You know, after right. Or whatever the case is. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
So yeah, that's that's amazing. Broadly, our vision. Thank you, thank you. So, how has it been in terms of navigating um, COVID and you know social distancing and closures and quarantines? Um, and and thinking about too like this upcoming you know the upcoming anniversary also um, not just the ninety nine but beyond. Um, so yeah, just yeah. curious what this has been like. Um, so logistically, I would say Fulton Street has been in this interesting place because we weren't fully operational. Okay. Um, and so while, because we had our grand opening scheduled for June 12th, we've now pushed it back to July 1. But we okay. were in my operation. We were having events. We were having pop-ups. You know, we're making mm-hmm. sales. We just, our physical space wasn't fully open because we were still under construction. And mm-hmm. so when this hit, there was kind of a, like, oh, thank God we weren't fully operational yet because I don't know that we would have been able to survive it being that young. That's um, right. And so, you know, when there was, like, all the relief and things like that, it's like, you know, we're in the sense being impacted by COVID with pushing back our um, open date and with without being able to do some of those kind of pre-opening pop-ups and things like that, that mm-hmm. we're giving us some initial revenue to, you know, put back into our space. Um, but also didn't feel, you know, like we knew the funds were going to run out. We knew there wasn't going to yeah. be enough. And maybe that's like a part of the psychology of being from a marginalized community is like this lack of, you know, sufficient resources. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, well, we're not fully operational. I don't want to take from other businesses. And then you look around and you find out, well, most businesses that were owned by people of color were not getting, you know, the funding. Um, yep. And so I think it's a business who struggled early on to get funding for uh, various reasons that you can imagine in some balance. Um, this hits a little bit harder. Um, mm-hmm. Even as Tulsa's had a really strong community response. So the community has yeah. been amazing in the sense that it's like, oh, we got to support our small businesses. We're not going to let people go out of business. You got people eating out of every day. <laughs> you know, like all of wow, that. Yeah. That has been very strong. But the other thing that became, you know, a very noticeable trend was what businesses were being supported. So there were a few places that put out, like, here are all the local restaurants that are doing curbside or, you know, delivery or whatever. And noticeably missing were a lot of our Black-owned restaurants or our Latino-owned yeah. restaurants. Um, and so then there was other things floating around that was like, here are some Black restaurants you can support. And it's like, well, this was born out of necessity because we were left out of, you know, right. the mainstream. So you know, all those things just become more amplified in a time like right. this. Right. Um, there's also, you know, what that breeds, I think, is dangerous because then you have, I think, businesses taking more risk because they're being mm-hmm. left out. So their mm-hmm. need is greater. And then when you look yeah. at who COVID is impacting, it kind of creates this um, cycle, right? Yep. These businesses yep. are trying to open early because they're being left out of resources, which forces them to need to do this, and then that can create an unhealthy situation. Um, right. And so, you know, I kind of have all these things in the back of my mind. My, of course, excuse for just hunkering down has been I have a new baby. My baby yeah. doesn't have a fully built immune system. Like, we're staying in the house. Mm-hmm. I'm not risking mm-hmm. anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think to answer your question just amplifies all of the inequities that already existed well before um, we were hit with coronavirus. Um, mm-hmm. Thank you to the upcoming anniversary. 
there's a um, story I like to tell when people visit Fulton Street for the first time, like when groups and stuff are coming in. So uh-huh. on our on our wall, we have, um, you know, my favorite books, my favorite songs, and some, like, iconic pictures from the, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s. And mm. on the part that's song, there is um, Strange Fruit. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, very... Um, uh, sorry, I'm just checking on. I hear my baby crying. Of course. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> very um, historical song for a lot of communities, but particularly the black yeah. community. And on the wall, it says Strange Fruit, and then it says Nina Simone. And mm. there's some intentionality there because Nina Simone. <laughs> wasn't the first person to sing the song. Right. Um, Billie Holiday was mm-hmm. the first person to sing the song. And funny enough, the song was written by a Jewish man who I believe was also a communist. Um, hmm. Originally as a poem, it was later turned into a song, which Billie Holiday sung for the first time. Um, and Billie Holiday was persecuted for singing the song. There was the head of um, the U.S. Drug and whatever department um, mm. who was so outraged that she would dare sing such a controversial song, and they attempted to shut her down and silence her, and she refused to stop singing the song, right? Yes. And ultimately, it leads to her dying in a hospital bed, chained to the hospital bed, broke. Um, mm. And I imagine that for that man who's so... Um, with all his heart, mind, body, spirit, soul, wanted to silence her and, you know, um, rip this song from the face of the earth. I yeah. imagine that when she passed away, he thought he had done his job, right? <laughs> I, I did it. It's done. The song is gone. Right. Um, and it brings me, and every time I say this, I get chills. It brings me so much joy mm. to know the hope, right, <laughs> that when this song pops up again, but now coming out of the mouth of Nina Simone, that he mm. must have been rolling over in his grave, right, because he could not kill that thing which he thought to eradicate from this earth. He couldn't kill the spirit of it. Yeah. Um, and so the parallel set for me of this upcoming anniversary is, mm-hmm. you know, when the white folks burned down Greenwood, um, mm when they saw, you know, black folks being interned in the, you know, the encampment and saw that the business had been burned to the ground, completely burned to the ground, they must have thought, right, we did it. It's over. You know, Mm. it's done. We've killed that thing that we wanted so badly to eradicate from the face of this earth, right? Yes. Um, That now... As we see the resurgence of black businesses, whether it's Fulton Street, whether it's Silhouette, whether it's the Black Wall Street Art Gallery, mm-hmm. that it gives me so much joy, right, to know that in opening my doors, that <laughs> these folks must be rolling over in their graves to know that they cannot kill that thing, right? Um, I love so that. That's, that's what this means to me. That's what this means to me, that that, yeah. that thing, that spirit that people thought to drive out of this, this physical space is still alive um and that gives me chills and gives me purpose and it gives me drive Mm. 
That was incredible. Thank you so much for that story. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I love that. And it and it made me think about like um what you shared about strange fruit and wondering like, okay, so who can pick that up now? You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. how can that be um how can we be reminded of that? Because clearly yeah. the uh sentiment is still relevant. Um, yeah. And the, the storytelling is still relevant, unfortunately. Um, yep. And so, yeah, thank you for that. Thank you for that. Maybe. Thank you. This was incredible. Thank you so much for your time. I'm so um, grateful. Yeah. I want to make sure Thanks you stay in touch. Me. Street. Of course. Of course. One of the things I've been thinking about since that amazing conversation with Onika is her question, what if storytelling is an act of revolution? And that's been some inspiration for me to finally start this podcast, audio project, whatever you want to call it, Um, but just documenting this time and learning from history, from our, our foremothers, forefathers, all the people and ancestors that came before us. Their stories are important, particularly to give us some context maybe some rage and maybe some peace about what we're experiencing now. And on the theme of supporting storytelling and black storytellers, please make sure to check out Fulton street bookstore and cafe. Even if you're not in Tulsa, Oklahoma, if you're driving through definitely go in, it's opening in July, but they have an online bookstore an online site And you can get tons of information um, and buy a little gift and support Black business. That's FultonStreet918.com. And also check out the Black Wall Street Gallery. Shout out to Dr. Rico Wright, um, who is running for mayor of Tulsa. Amazing. And also, if you want to know more about ways that you can participate in Juneteenth activities, check out the Movement for Black Lives website. And that's M, the number 4 B as in black, L as in lives.org. So that's m4bl.org. Again, this is Jana Zinzi signing off of this first installment of Spirit in the Material World. You can find more about me at janazinzi.com, J-A-N-N-A-Z-I-N-Z-I.com, or reach out to me on the socials. You can find me because Google and, you know, social media. I hope you enjoyed it and we'll be back next week with more dope content for Black Music Month. Take care of yourselves.